Your Money Replay from Money FM 89.3. Money and Me on Your Money, only on Money FM 89.3. What is the link between a yield curve and recession? Most importantly, what can a yield curve help you out with when it comes to decisions to do with your portfolio? Are there income strategies for an inverted yield curve? We'll put all those questions to our special guest this Friday, Freddie Lim, CIO of Stashaway. How are you, Freddie? Very well. Good to have you with me. So for Halloween this year, I thought of going to a party as an inverted yield curve. I thought of pasting graph paper on myself, standing on my head, inverted, and then saying, you know, shouting every now and then saying, recession is here, recession is here. Oh my, I was going to say, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't. Today, we are going to understand yield curve and contrarian calls. First up, what is a yield curve and why should investors take note of it? Uh, Firstly, I want to say, when I was going through 2008 crisis, nobody talked about the yield curve. And suddenly it's hyped. And a lot of people didn't know what it is exactly. So here it goes. We can have a inter, you know, like a bank rate. You put your money in the bank. It's very short dated for say 30 days. You have a 30 day interest rate. Or it can go all the way out there where I borrow a loan, take out a loan on my home mortgage. And that goes out 15 years or 30 years from now. That interest rate is another interest rate. Let's say it goes higher. Right. So when you plot all this, you plot a graph that goes through all these dots, different time on the x-axis at different level of interest rates, you trace out something called a yield curve. And in the normally functioning economy, it looks upward sloping. The longer the time, the higher the interest rate, because there's more risk in the lender of money to you that you will default and not pay back, right? More time, more exposure, more room for default and non-payments. So in a normal situation, the U-curve is upward sloping. Okay. And when it's inverted, does that mean all doom is coming our way? So said the theory or the <laughs> economists. Um, I beg to defer later, oh. but that's so so what that's what worries the economists. Okay. Yeah. So what determines the shape of the yield curve again? Interest rates, length of time, and perceived risk. Yeah, a lot of that. But in, at the macro level, you tend to hear about the Fed or the MAS. So we have central banks around the world and they directly control short-term interest rates. It could be up to three months, up to one year. They have a lot of inference there. So when they cut interest rates, those shorter-term ones goes down a lot more than a long-term one. And what we have here is a steepening of the U-curve. Conversely, when they high interest rate, like what they did last year, mm-hmm. more sensitivity in the short-term ones, less so in the long-term one, the curve flattened. And that's what worried the economists right now. What is the influence of QE, quantitative easing, on shaping these yield curves? Yeah, it's a fantastic question and very fascinating because it depends on what's the maturity of the assets that the central banks are buying when they support the market. So back in 2008, quantitative easing was initiated by the Federal Reserve. We had a big crisis and somebody needed to step in to buy everything. (laughs) 
<laughs> well said. And bought it hold it for for a long time, right? And so, in particular, I think the Fed at the time bought long dated assets. They can buy mortgages, they can buy bonds from other people, and they just hold it on their balance sheet. So, the QE in this case can influence long term rates more than. Medium term and short term, and you flatten the curve. We are getting a masterclass on yield curves. Still to come, contrarian calls with my guest today, Freddie Lim. He's CIO of Stash Away. Freddie, do you think that yield curves are reliable means, a measure of predicting a recession? Or just this week, my friend Arun Pai from Crystal AI put my eyes to the underwear index, which is uh, a link of, you know, linking whether or not men spend on their underwear to the possibility of economic downturn. We're not talking about the underwear index today, but... <laughs> well, well we, we also have in the Silicon Valley, uh-huh. uh, San Francisco area, we have this ping pong, sales of ping pong table, pool table in the uh, Greater Bay area. And that's also a proxy for whether venture capital funding tech startups are doing well or not. So fascinating. You can, you can create all sorts all, of indices. All sorts of measures, right? Okay, so what makes the U.S. Treasury yield curve special compared to other yield curves on the market? Well, the U.S. dollar and the U.S. government, they are the reserve currency in the world. So lots of uh, emerging economies, uh, companies borrow and they denominated the debts in U.S. dollars. And the risk-free rates, the basis for discounting cash flow and getting present value pricing risk correctly, it starts with the risk-free rate, which in this case would be the U.S. government bonds. Got it. Okay, we have a question from a listener. Freddie, what does the yield curve look like now? And why do you think, what can investors read from it? Currently, it depends on which curve you look at. And currently, the main one that's in the media is the so-called two-year, 10-year yield curve, which is basically just the difference between 10-year and two-year rates. It's about 0.15%. It's so set very flat, close to zero. A couple of months ago, it was slightly negative, and that scares a lot of people. The truth is, if you look at the data, the reliability of the U-curve in predicting recessions and crises are actually quite poor. On average, I can say when the curve inverts, the market still goes up quite substantially for a while. Maybe 18 months later, the market may react by going down, but there's a lot of upside left. It's not a very good timing indicator, but it does give you a sense like some warning signs is flashing. For the two-year or the 10-year? It's the difference between the two. The difference between? When it's negative. So right. when two-year rate is higher than 10-year rate, ah, okay, oh God, and people get worried about that. I have a lot of personal view against it because I lived through 2008 crisis. I was in the market. Nobody talks about the U-curve. Why are we talking about it today mm. when there's no crisis? Is it a made-up concept mm. after the fact? Mm. Or, or is it hyped by someone somewhere? And the key guiding light for us as investors is to look at the data. If you look at the curve, you overlay it with the stock markets, it's not a very reliable indicator. Okay. In fact, the market crashes after the U-curve stop inverting, not when the U-curves yes. are inverted. Wow, really important yeah. point there yeah. from someone who's lived through 2008. And, and, you know, presumably he was looking at the yield curve before that, but nobody was even looking at the yield curve before that. Yeah, that's how old I am. That's how I know it. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, help us understand 
how volatility indices are different from yield curves um, when it comes to some sort of indicator for investor sentiment? Um, it's a timing question. The, the volatility index uh, indices that's constructed today, they are quite short-dated in nature. So honestly, they have zero information value for investors because they move instantaneously with the stock markets. When the stock market is down, instantaneously, the VIX, the main one in the US, the volatility index, goes up right away. So it's almost the same speed and they go, you know, so there's no information value. Whereas the U-curve is a little more structural, less related to market. It can persistently go down over a period of time and keep flashing those warning signs. So it's more long-term. Mm. So... In terms of your own approach to the yield curve and the information you take from it for investing decisions, how would you define yourself? Your contrarian investor? That's okay. Or let me not. put or it, what is contrarian? Let me investor? give you an analogy. Right. It's a fantastic question. <laughs> There's a hundred people in the room and investing is not an agreeable science. That's one thing we have to understand. It's not a what science? It's not an agreeable science. Meaning if everybody in the room agrees, who is left to buy? Ah. But conversely, if nobody in the room agrees with you and you are the only one, the first one out there doing something, you're also going to lose money because okay. nobody is joining the trade. So don't be, you know, no one left to buy or no one joined the trade. That's equally bad. So contrarian is more in the second case where I'm the only guy in the room and I like something, but nobody likes it yet. Ah, okay. So that's a problem too. So there's a time to be contrarian and there's a time not to be contrarian. You don't want to be the only guy in the room. You want to be maybe the first 15, 20 guys uh-huh. to start a new trend, doing something new, contrarian. But you don't want to be the last guy in the room too when you get out of something. Right? So it's always about being more... Not the first one and not the last one, but be early enough. Okay, I want to be the smartest girl in the room. That's oh, what yeah. I want to be. Yeah. So tell me about the dangers that come with the style of investing called contrarian investing. So from what I said earlier, the problem is the loneliness. If you're too alone, then nobody's there to support your trade. It's not gaining consensus in the marketplace. You will lose money. Mm. Yes, you could be right eventually. Like I've seen a lot of cases where traders tell me they have a personal opinion on something and they bought it too early and they got stopped out by the market. Again, KO by the market. And then it works after the RKO. That happens a lot. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness me. Okay, so let's get a personal perspective on contrarian calls. What do you think of gold and how gold has been doing since December 2017? Some people have been buying and, you know, a significant proportion of their portfolio is in gold, for example. What do you think of that call? Well, for one, ourselves at Stash Away back in mid-December 2017, we did a first major change in our strategy in a lot of our clients' portfolios. Tens of thousands of portfolios have been re-optimized and we bought a lot of go. Don't forget, that time the market was up a lot. Yes. Massive. And to make that call at the point where the market was doing so well, we attracted quite a lot of uh, interest. That call 
it's a contrarian call, but not easy one the time. As I said, contrarian is hard to be a contrarian. Yes. But for us, it was more of a valuation approach because at that time everything was up so much and went way overvalued versus the fundamentals on our models, and we started thinking about okay, risks are going up, right? We have a lot of formal fear of missing out when there's a lot of rampant complacency, fear of missing out. Everybody in the room has bought something. What's going to happen next? So our models were systematically flagging risk. It's from the risk angle and the valuation angle that the growth stuffs are too expensive. We make an adjustment to the portfolio. And gold was the main primary vehicle for reducing risk because it's a proven commodity that does well when the market is down. It's a portfolio insurance. Oh, wow. Yes. This is so fascinating to get yeah. insight to how you calibrate portfolios, what goes into the decisions there. So tell me, there was also a decision that you made around European equities? That's quite recent and also similarly always attracted criticisms at the time of doing it. This was when? This year? Yes, yeah, this? this is uh, in mid 15th of August this year when we did our second ever so-called re-optimization of all the portfolios on the platform. And it was exciting because everybody hates European equities. For the last 10, 15 years, it, it does nothing. That's a lot of feedback we got. The problem is when something has gotten so cheap, so beaten down to an extreme, and it has started to stabilize, that's the time to be a contrarian. And at StashAway, that's sort of systematic, automated adjustments on our platform. Just so fascinating. The machines are quick. (laughs) (laughs) I want to see these machines at work. Can I come and tour StashAway sometime? (laughs) Okay, let's talk about ETFs. Passive investing grown by leaps and bounds with fintech platforms uh, entering Singapore. And we've seen that ETFs, some say active fund managers, that ETFs could present the next systemic risk for financial markets. Do you agree? Absolutely disagree. Ah. Uh, We are effectively, if you look at the numbers, in terms of share of global assets under management, ETFs globally manages no more than $7.5 trillion. Global assets under management is easily above seventy trillion. So we are about actually I, I've done the math. Okay. It's about eight point six three percent of the global markets right now. So we are blaming the small guy for systemic risks. Right. We have unit trust mutual funds that's six times bigger. We have hedge fund that's slightly smaller at four trillion dollars, but they can borrow three to five times their capital to trade, and they buy and they sell. Whoever is going to crash the market is not going to be the passive index funds who is holding for the long-term purpose. It's going to be the short sellers in mutual funds, hedge funds, or other places. There could be a lot of ways other factors can crash the market. So why blame the small guy? Okay, so if you were to just give a top-of-your-head assessment of what could possibly affect markets much more than ETFs, what would you say then? Well, we have already seen it. We have uh, quite a lot of crashes before ETF ever existed. 2008 was a mortgage crisis. 
basically uh, every crisis. Where we are now, though, what do you think? Well, I think where a crisis always happens is where there's too much leveraged. And actually, the good news I have for audiences here is that mm. I actually don't see as much leverage as before 2008, because uh, since then we have a lot of regulatory changes, lots of capital requirement. We are more careful than before. There are always some risks for a certain market drawdown, but to have a crisis now, it's just the chances are a lot smaller than before. Well, you just made my Friday, Freddie. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Like Albert Einstein said, the power of compounding is the eighth wonder of the world and is a physicist, not investor. What it means is that don't get KO'd by the market. Yeah. Just stay invested, invest your savings. If you're nervous, review your risk level, review your investment plans. Just don't get all the hearsay, naysay that affects your decisions. Stay on a long-term game. Let time compound your wealth. Love that. And remember, the worst thing you can do with your money is to do nothing with it. It's quite bad because you're earning no interest. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, as always, for a fascinating discussion. Freddie Lim is CIO of Stashway. Have a great weekend, Freddie. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.